Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Nick Majuli. He's the Chief Operating Officer for Ritz-Holtz Wealth Management and an expert in personal finance using data analysis. Saving money and building wealth are some of the most popular content on the internet. But what are the absolute best ways to maximize your fortune? Nick has broken down the complex world of personal finance to find out what the data actually says about different strategies. Expect to learn why earning more is better than spending less, why buying the dip is a losing strategy, the easiest way to invest in the stock market, how to spend money guilt-free, why almost everyone has a backwards retirement strategy, how to tell when you should sell, what the Vanderbilt's lost fortune can teach us about spending money, and much more. This is an absolutely awesome episode. I love when a complex, highly contested world gets broken down by somebody that just has tons of data and experience, and Nick has done this. This is the sort of episode that you should come back to any time that you're trying to make some sort of financial investing or saving decision. Just come back to this and think about, what did Nick say? What would Nick do? W-W-N-D. Get it on a t-shirt or something. Anyway, enjoy this one and share it with a friend if you think that they suck it earning money or spending money or saving money. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult and Crafted London have nailed it. They're the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof and gymproof. They've got custom designs in gold and silver, necklaces, chains, pendants, bracelets, rings and earrings. If you've seen me on any of the big cinema episodes on YouTube wearing a necklace, it will always be from Crafted. I absolutely love it. It works with formal wear, casual wear, whether it's daytime or nighttime. All of the pieces are super high quality. The designs are great and uh, I love them. That's It's all I wear. Also, they have an unlimited lifetime guarantee so if your piece breaks for any reason at any point during the entire life of the product they will give you a new one for free get a 15 percent discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cd wisdom and using the code mw15 at checkout that's bit.ly slash letter c letter d wisdom and mw15 at checkout Tell me if this sounds familiar. Your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Things that you used to do in a day are taking a week. You're drowning so much, you've now promoted your dog from company mascot to customer service representative. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, that is the 25th year anniversary of NetSuite. 25 years of helping businesses to do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system. With one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com modern. That's netsuite.com modern to get your own KPI checklist today. This episode is brought to you by AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Even with the best diet in the world, it is hard to make sure that you get everything that you need. And through a science-driven formulation, vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced nutrients, AG1 delivers comprehensive support for the brain, gut, 
and immune system. This is why Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman and Dr. Andrew Huberman and Tim Ferriss are all massive fans. They have tried every other product out there like I have, and this is by far the best one available. Since 2010, AG1 have improved the formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible through high quality ingredients and rigorous standards. Also, there's a 90-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it for 89 days. And if you don't like it, they'll just give you your money back. Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. But now, please give it up for Nick Majuli. The world of personal finance I find quite interesting because it's similar to diet in that everybody needs to eat. Similarly, everybody needs to have money and earn money. And yet, it seems like there is no widely accepted wisdom about the single best way to construct your financial life. I understand people have different requirements, but it does kind of surprise me a little bit that it's still so contested, even though everybody should have an opinion on it. Yeah, definitely. I think it's contested for a host of reasons because I really don't think there's like one right way to do it. And I kind of, you know, I've discussed this a little bit. Like there's that, uh, I think that line from Anna Karenina, which is like, you know, all happy families are the same, but all unhappy families are unhappy in their own way. Well, it's kind of the reverse in wealth management, which is, or sorry, with like building wealth. Like there's like only a few ways you can go broke, but there's a lot of different ways you can get rich, right? There's people who got rich in real estate. There's people who got rich buying stocks, individual stocks, you know, index funds, you know, you can name it farmland, whatever. There's a lot of ways people get rich, but everyone goes broke one of like a couple ways. It's usually high risk, high spending or leverage or some mix of those things there that usually causes it. So that's kind of how I look at the world. So I think that's why it's contested because there's real estate people saying you have to own real estate, you have to do this. And there's stock market investors saying, no, real estate's dumb. I don't want to waste time doing that. The hassle of a, a frozen the pipe that bursts at night. There's always that same tale, right? And I think they're both wrong. I think there's both, there's pluses and minuses and everyone has their biases and I can get into mine, but I think that's why it's contested. Yeah, you're probably right. What do you think are the biggest myths in personal finance? I've only a couple of times uh, dropped into Finn Twitter, which I didn't even know was a thing, um, but I've been CC'd in a couple of times and it's a it's a complete cesspool. Um, so yeah, talk to me about the biggest myths that exist in personal finance. So I'll just, I'll talk about three of the biggest myths in, in personal finance. The first one I think is that you can, um, cutting spending is like a reliable way to build wealth. Now, unless you have really high income and you have really high spending, that's the only way it's going to work. For most people, cutting spending just isn't like a reliable way. And the reason I say that is because if you actually look at the data and I was using, you know, data in the United States on, you know, how households spend money. There's not much to cut for a lot of lower income households. And the and the fact is the savings rate is positively correlated with income. So as people's incomes go up, their spending does go up, but not as quickly as their income. So that difference is how you save money. It's pretty obvious. So, so, so the best way to actually save money in a, a psychological way is actually to earn money because you're going to end up out earning your ability to spend. Yes, generally. I mean, of course, there's everyone's like, well, I know this person who spends all their money. Well, like, yes, that's the exception. Most people with higher income don't do that. And I think 
And obviously some people are going to hear them say, well, that's very obvious to me. And I'm like, yes, that's an obvious point. But there's a lot of people. I mean, there's still a lot of personal finance gurus that say you need to cut your weight. You need to get rid of your lattes. You need to stop doing this and that. And I think anyone who's looked at the data will see, obviously, like it's clear that incomes go up with savings rate. Like savings rate is positively correlated with income. The higher your income is, generally the higher your savings rate. That's like been empirically proven across a lot of studies and in a lot of ways. So that's the first one I'll talk about. The second one I think is more of an investing question, which is like there's this idea of like, oh, I'm waiting to buy the dip. I'm just going to save cash until I buy the dip, right? And I think this um, this one's a little bit more difficult to understand, but I think it's a subpar strategy because generally most you know equity markets over time have gone up and to the right over the long term. So by sitting in cash, you're usually going to lose out because you're waiting for that dip. And by the time that dip occurs, you're now buying at a higher average price. And so like imagine the, the price is at 100 you're like, okay, I'm going to wait till there's a 20% dip that I'm going to buy. Now the price goes to 200, right? And now let's say there's a 20% dip. So 20% of 200 is 40. So 200 minus 40 is 160. So it goes from 100 to 200, goes down to 160. Now you buy, you're like, wow, I bought this dip. I'm so smart. But it's like, you just bought 60% higher than what you could have bought, you know, before. Now it's, it's usually not that drastic, but imagine that on a much smaller scale, right? And so that's, that's why, you know, waiting to buy the dip doesn't usually work. And, and, and behaviorally it's really tough because while the market's dipping, it's the time when you're going to be least enthusiastic to buy. You're not like, oh my gosh, you know, March, 2020, if you were like, oh wait, this is a deal. And then like you bought, and then it's like, oh wait, it went lower and lower and lower. And then you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't get a deal after all. So you're going to beat yourself up. Um, so that's another thing. And the, the third piece of that is like, even if you, you win now, what you're going to think you're a genius and then later you're going to hold cash and the dip's not going to come because those dip, big dips are rare and then you're going to miss out. So I think that's the general course of history. And so that's another myth, which I would like to smash. Um, and let's just do a third. I usually talk about 401k, but I know like if I knew a probably more global audience, so let's not discuss 401ks and like stuff in the U.S., um, the third big myth I think is out there is that everyone says like debt is bad. There's a lot of people that think debt is bad. And I think debt is can be good or bad depends on how you use it and depends on kind of your, you know, your what's going on in your financial situation. So the thing I like to say is debt is best for people who don't need it. If you don't need debt, you can use debt really well. For example, I'll use a very extreme example. A lot of the super rich like Elon Musk and people like that, they use debt all the time. And it's like, how? Because they take their assets, they give them up as like collateral, and then they borrow against it because rates are so low. So they end up not having to sell anything, sell down their equity, have to pay taxes. There's a lot of benefits to that when the when the after-tax yield on selling your, your, you know, your capital gains and everything is higher than what you would get from just paying the interest rate. So I think there's a lot of ways people can use debt um, in a smart way. And I just think you have to, if you don't really need it, then it's really useful to you. It's kind of one of these ironic things, you know, like rich people get paid a higher interest rate because they have more money in the bank than poor people, right? It's like, it's very weird how that is, but that's just like a general rule of life. And that's the same thing with, with debt as well. So yeah. Kind of three, three myths. Would you say that people that are highly leveraged, if they've got a property portfolio, whatever, 25% loan to value, um, is that the same thing? Would you consider that being like a, a, a smart use of debt, so to speak? Because I'm leveraged up to my eyeballs when it comes to the property portfolio that I've got in the UK, but mm -hmm. all of those are positive uh, cash generating machines. They're all sitting mm -hmm. at a good interest only mortgage, et cetera, et cetera. Is that another way to look at it? Yeah, I think I think that's how you have to look at it. It's like how much, yeah, it's debt to leverage ratios matter. That that matters a lot. And I think in terms of leverage, whether it depends how you're using your leverage and everything, but I think like the leverage thing I like to look at is like Warren Buffett never went over like 1.5 to 1. And that's like he was a stock investor, obviously. Right? He wasn't buying property. But 
if Warren Buffett never took more than, you know, 50% above his capital and leverage, then like you definitely shouldn't. Right. So like just it's about how much you do it. It's how much and how much you want to you know crank that up. Right. I think that's the key. And so obviously there are probably certain cases where if there was some sort of crazy, you know, local event that like happened to hit all your properties in a way and you didn't have enough insurance. Like there are cases where you can still get wiped out, but they're probably very, very, very rare and very unlikely. They have to be like almost world ending. And in those cases, like your investment portfolio doesn't matter. So it's another bigger problem. Yeah. There's bigger problems. Yeah. If that, if the stock market does go to zero, if the S and P mm-hmm. pulls back by 80%, you've got concerns about mm-hmm. people fighting in the streets and like Mad Max going on outside. So yeah, I understand. All right. So yeah. let's, 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 begin you, you what i like about the new book that you've just released is that you break up personal finance into sort of its two components like the saving slash earning and then the investing right so income and the output i guess on the other side mm-hmm. so how do people know which one they're supposed to focus on first yeah so in the first chapter of the book i talk about something called the save invest continuum and everyone's on this continuum everyone on the planet you just have to figure out you just need two numbers and you can figure this out first number is how much could you save in the next year assuming it's a positive number right if it's negative that's a, we, that we have all sorts of other issues there but let's assume you could save like i don't know thousand bucks ten thousand bucks whatever ten thousand pounds in the next year that's your first number your second number is how much can your investments earn you in the next year right so the example i always give is let's say you had twenty thousand pounds or something and you're getting 5% on that, you know, so that's 1,000 pounds a year. So you have 10,000 pounds you could save, you know, in a year you have 1,000 pounds you can earn, right? So that's 10 to 1. Whatever one's bigger, that's where you need to focus. And so what what do I mean? So in this case, if you could save 10,000 pounds a year, but your your income can only – or your investments can only earn you 1,000, you need to find ways to – Keep get that money and get it invested. So you raise the other number. You want to raise the investment number as much as you can until it's like almost equal to what you can save, right? Ideally. And over time, you should see this happen with the growth in the market. Like when I first started this, I had almost no investment income, right? But I could save a lot more money. And over time, I basically started saving. And now I'm at the point where I I basically can save as much as my portfolio can earn me in a good year. Assuming there's a good year. Obviously, if there's a down year, it doesn't, you know, it's not going to matter. But if there's a really bad down year, I couldn't save my way out of it. Like, it would take maybe two years of income, of savings, to get my way out of, like, a bad year. Assuming, like, assuming I sold, I'm not going to sell. But let's assuming I sold, right, and I had to, like, make up with that cash, it, would take, it might take me a few years. So that's, that's a simple example. You just see, like, where am I focusing? And over time, what you should see happen is you should move from the savings, you can save more, to over time, your investments should be able to earn more than you can save, right? And, you, and the simple example does this, right? Imagine you're 23 years old, you have a thousand pounds in your, um, whatever, in your brokerage account or whatever, even a 10% return, that's a hundred pounds. That's nothing. You can go spend that out at the pub or whatever very easily. Right. But now imagine, you know, you have 10 million pounds, you know, even a 10% drop in your portfolio is a million pounds. That's like a lot of money, right? You're not going to be able to say, unless you have a really, really high income, you're not gonna be able to save a million pounds in here. Right. So those are extreme examples, but they show like in certain cases, investing is everything. And in other cases, it's all about what you can save. And so usually that's correlated with age too. So that's the thing to think about there. What does that look like practically when you're saying you need to focus on saving or you need to focus on investing? Like, how does that manifest in people's lives? Yeah. So for the example I'll give when I was 23, I was spending way too much time on my investments. What I mean by that, I had spreadsheets about, oh, here's my allocation. Here's I'm going to optimize this. I know it should be 5% bonds or 10% bonds. I'm caring about all that. What I should have been doing was building my skills, you know, networking more with my career, doing all that to focus on the income aspects of my financial life, not the investments, because I didn't have that much money to invest. Right. And so what does that mean on the opposite side? Let's say you're 65 years old, you're retired. You can't really save anymore. 
all you have to care about is like, what am I doing with my investments? I need to care about taxes. I need to care about tax yield. There's all sorts of things that when you're 22, it doesn't matter. You're like, oh, should I do like a Roth IRA or a normal IRA? Or should I put it into 20% bonds or 10% bonds? When you're 22, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. And outside of like a couple lucky people who bought an NFT that went up 10 trillion percent, it that's very rare. That should not happen. Again, those things are incredibly rare. Like outside of those exceptions, like it's not going to matter. Like your asset allocation is not going to matter that much. It's going to matter a lot more when you have a lot more, you know, money at stake, basically. So that's that's sort of think about. When I say where to focus. I mean, like how much time and energy. What are you focusing on? Are you caring about taxes? Are you caring about risk? Are you caring about things? That's the investment side. Or are you caring about your career and how you're going to build income? That's the saving kind of earning side. What do you think NFTs and crypto and these huge balloons in individual personal wealth? that's been facilitated pretty much exclusively in the last 10 years. I'm sure that you could probably give me an example from history when some stocks gone gone wild mm -hmm. as well, but you know, like mm -hmm. ballistic, neat Wall Street bets sat at home, people that are being made. What do you think that's teaching us about what it means to either be rich or be financially successful or be wealthy? Because I have some concerns about what I think this means sort of on a broader psychological uh, basis for people. So I think if you had asked me this question in November 2021, it would have been a far more it would have been a far better question because back then all the tech stocks and all the tech stocks in the US were up a lot. Crypto was up a ton, right? Right now at Bitcoin as as of this recording is trading at 40k, which is like not half, but like a you know, a little more than half below where it was, right? It's peak. So you start thinking about all these things. And like if you had asked me that back then, the lesson was, oh, everyone gets rich, but it's a bull market. Now that these things are down 40, 50 percent, there's a lot of people who got rich in 2021 that are now seeing those losses and in big ways. Now, of course, those people that got into crypto and NFTs and you know, early in you know, 2018, 2019, when all these things started popping, they're doing very well regardless. Um, I hope it doesn't teach the wrong lesson of like, oh, I'm I'm smart and I did this. And some of these people, I'm not saying you're not smart. I'm just saying you might have gotten lucky. And if you if you recognize there's some luck in this process, that's what's important. I'm not saying you're not smart. Like I, you saw something I didn't. That's true. But does that mean you're going to see every other thing that someone else isn't going to see? That's the question. Dude, and so Nick, Nick, just some be a little people, humble. Some people saw something that you didn't. Others just fucking memed their way to multimillionaire status. Like, don't get me wrong. Yes. There are there are people out there. I have a friend uh, who told me about Ethereum in 2016 when it was $23. And I put about £1,000, maybe £2,000 in. And it went from 23 to 110 And then it had a little pullback. And I was like, right, cool. I'm out. Fucking yes, bro. Forex my investment. <laughs> And I, you know, that, that to me still now is like what, and, and it was in, uh, eToro as well. So it was, um, it would have been tax free because it's just whatever bet, bet spreading or whatever mm -hmm. it's called. Mm -hmm. Um, but <laughs> the concern that I have, especially around sort of the NFT craze and, and, and crypto and stuff like that, it seems to me that there is a big chunk of people. This isn't everybody, a big chunk of people who do not give a single fuck about the fundamentals, about the technology, about what it can do for people in war-torn countries like the Ukraine who can't send money back to their families, people that are under dictatorial rule that have got whatever financial uh, uh, bureaucracy that's stopping them from doing stuff. That's what they say. It's, uh, how would you say, um, ruthless capitalists masquerading as good Samaritans. And you go, mm -hmm. dude, if it wasn't for the fact that you can make millions and millions of dollars off this, would you still care? No, you wouldn't. 
No, you wouldn't. And fuck mm-hmm. off if you say that you would. You would not give a mm-hmm. single shit. You like the fact that it's you can sit in a hoodie and meme your way to millions of bucks. That's what you like about mm-hmm. this. Don't tell me mm-hmm. that it's... Again, there is technology that underlies NFTs that may be useful in the future. There is technology that underlies the blockchain that almost certainly probably will be useful in the future. But don't start fucking telling me about why, like, Cardano is this beautiful thing and it's going to change the whatever. It's like, no, bro, you're, you're, long, on, you're long in this fucking investment. Like, you have the, yeah. the highest number of uh, perverse incentives here. Fuck off. Yeah, the skin skins in the game, right? Yeah, even like I'm a big proponent of stocks and low cost stock index funds, but even like my, you know, of my equity portfolio, which isn't even, you know, it's only like I think equities are only 70% of what I own, right? In total, you know, the rest is bonds and, and, you know, I do own some crypto and some art and some other things, right? So that's the rest, but some REITs as well. But so of the 70%, only half of that's in US stocks, right? Because it's kind of close to like, I basically try to get a market weight cap. So like, my total investment portfolio is like maybe 35% US stocks. So even if I'm like, yeah, you guys should buy like US stocks or whatever, like, that's only benefiting me 35% of right, you know, versus someone who's like 100% Cardano. I, I, I agree with what you're saying. Yeah, there's there's obviously those types of perverse actors. Some people just do it for the fun. They're just it's their momentum. They're really momentum traders. That's what they're doing. They're following momentum, and that's fine. That's a, that's a strategy that's worked, but it's really tough because when it turns against you, it turns against you really badly. So, you know, I know the data on that, and I'm, I don't recommend that people go out and just try and do that type of stuff. I think it's very difficult to do, especially over the long long run. But yeah, you're right. I think it, it could be teaching the wrong lesson to people, but. You know, what I say is, you know, as long as people have, like, tried to help and try to tell people and try to get the message out there, like, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, you know, there's a great book, Devil Take the Hindmost, you know, just let it, let the chips fall where they may, you know, we can, we can try so much, but at some point you have to be like, hey, like, you made the choice, you know, if someone's lying to somebody, that's one thing, but if you're really trying to, like, get the message out there, help people, and these people are still like, ah, you're stupid, I know what I'm doing, then, you know, what can I say to you? So Yeah, I wonder that, especially yours, and we're both friends with Morgan Housel as well, and I think mm-hmm. your your investment strategy and his uh, align sort of pretty pretty perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, he, most of the people that I respect when it comes to growing personal wealth don't talk about sudden, out-of-the-blue windfalls that you discovered in the arse end of a Reddit thread. Like, that's not <laughs> where wealth is created. Um, and yet, because the, uh, how would you say, like the cream rises to the top in these sort of big stories that are kind of sexy and cool and a bit sort of mm-hmm. heterodox and contrarian and fuck the man, it's GME, bro. Like, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I don't get me wrong, dude. I fucking loved that shit last year. I loved that. But the subtext that it teaches people is it's not about having a consistent, reliable, replicable investing strategy that you can do for the next x decades of your life it's about Mm -hmm. timing the meme right it's about finding the right dog coin that's next going to do whatever the fuck yeah and my question to those people is like okay some of some of you are going to have talent are going to do this and you can do it but can you do it consistently i don't know i'm just going to say let's just say we don't know but like what's like is that the best use of your talent or should you just like find a low cost, you know, index fund or, or real estate or whatever you buy income producing assets. Right? I talk about the continual purchase of a diverse set of income producing assets. That is my investment philosophy in, you know, in one phrase and just spend your time doing something that's more valuable for you, Chris, that might be hosting a podcast for someone else. It might be something else, right? So it's like, 
if you instead of doing this right now and like getting out there and having, you know, people that, you know, listen to your stuff and learn from you, if you said, you know, what, I'm going to spend all my time GME stuff, it's just silly. It's like you would obviously be better suited doing this. I think there's a lot of people out there that are wasting time, you know, following pursuits that aren't really what's best for them, like what really fits their talents. And that's that's the real tragedy here, in my opinion, because obviously some people should be doing it. But I mean, there's probably too many people chasing this alpha that shouldn't be. So, OK, so getting back to the way that people look at saving. Uh, you mentioned mm-hmm. there about the difference between spending less or earning more, and mm-hmm. there's a, a good debate around this. There was always something icky, not icky, that's the wrong word. There was something that I didn't like about the FIRE movement, the financial independence, retire early, and mm-hmm. I, I think it, it was a combination of this kind of like overbearing frugality with an, a complete obsession in young age about finances and the fact that you kind of need to put your nose to the grindstone to get that going. Um, so stripping all of that back and all of the ideology that's around this sort of stuff, what do the stats say when it comes to spending less versus earning more? Yeah, so we talked about this a little earlier, but basically like when you earn more, like that's very highly correlated with savings rates. So like the more you earn, your spending doesn't generally go up with your with your higher income. And you can look at this across like income desk, I'm sorry, um, income quintiles, you know, groups of five, right? 20, every, the, you know, the bottom 20%, the 20th to 40th, et cetera, right? And you look and you see, you say, okay, here are the income um, quintiles here. How much are each one of these groups spending? And you look in each one of those quintiles and you see the spending does increase as it goes up, right? As you would expect, right? People generally who earn more generally buy nicer stuff, but it's not that much nicer. I call it like the law of the stomach. Like it's not like if you earn 10 times more than me, you're going to eat 10 times more calories, right? Like you're just going to eat, you know, you might even eat less calories for all we know, right? So it's like, it's one of those things where like, you know, at some point your consumption is not going to keep going up. Now there are people you're like, but I know someone's like, yes, there are exceptions to the rule, but there are exceptions, right? And I think I love this. I love when people say, you know what, like, Cutting spendings, everything, controlling your spendings, everything, because like look at these rich celebrities that went bankrupt. Like look at this rich celebrity, that rich celebrity, or this, you know, and they'll have they'll have you know a good number of examples. They may have 10 examples, right, of celebrities that went bankrupt. I'm like, okay, you have 10, I have every other celebrity. Like you're you have n equals 10, I have n equals number of celebrities minus 10, right? It's like <laughs> it's like, are you thinking about what you're saying? You know, it's like you're like you're literally like every like, I can name every other celebrity that's rich, right? Too. And that's like a lot of the stuff in the space. It's like I don't really care as much about mindset. I know mindset matters for raising income. I know it matters for, you know, getting yourself motivated. I would not debate that. But like mindset's hard to test. And until we can get some sort of brain monitoring so we can understand mindset, I think the data shows it's income. Like, for example, I know nothing about The Rock or Oprah, right? Or any other, you know, pick a, or, you know, Paul McCartney. I know nothing about how they think about money and their money mindset, right? Someone may know something, but I don't know. But what I do know is they all have high income, right? They all have, you know, wealth of some sort that provides them with income. And I know that with, with a fact. So I know that they can probably save decently because they have high income. I don't know if they're good with money. They could be terrible with money, but they're still not as terrible enough to offset their massive amounts of income, right? That's the key, you know? So I think thinking about that is what's important. So just, you know, that's why I try to challenge these types of things. Well, the reason that The Rock's rich isn't because he's optimized his Avis points on his like flyback <laughs> miles and stuff. I've just never. He found... may be doing that. <laughs> oh, you, well, you've probably got a guy that does that. But yeah, I, yeah. I, I, there's there's a I, I don't know what it's called. Do you know what it is? What's that group of people that do YouTube videos about how to get all different special types of cashback and like hack cashback with different cards? You mean like rewards card stuff? Yeah, like, I don't know, credit card hacking or something. I think I've heard of it. I know what you're talking about. I can't remember the name. But like Dude, Points Guy is like that's like the website for this. There's yeah. a huge, huge community of these people on YouTube, and I kind of watched a bit of it, and I was like, I'm so not compelled by this. It just seems to me 
it's such a more sort of forward-focused, growth-oriented strategy to go after earning more, whether that be through not necessarily always working harder, but looking at leverage, like leveraging your skills, leveraging your network, so on and so forth. So yeah, I think we're in simpatico there. Uh, talk to me about being able to spend money guilt-free, because this is something that I uh, struggle with chronically. Yeah, so I think there's two things to focus on when you're trying to spend money. The first is like, think about what fulfills you and find you. And you have to, the hard part, this is kind of a philosophical debate of the sorts of like the people have been asking this for, you know, thousands of years, you know, know thyself, right? That type of like philosophical, like the better you know yourself, the the easier it is going to be for you to spend money. And what do I mean by that? It's like, I, for example, don't spend a lot of money on clothing necessarily. Like this is, this t-shirt's like $8 from Amazon or something. You know, I don't spend a ton. I don't have a car. I'm 32, never had a car. I always live in big cities, Uber and, you know, subway everywhere. But I do spend a lot of restaurants. I live in New York City. I like going out to nice restaurants. I will spend what some may consider an exorbitant amount of money in restaurants. That's fine because that's what fulfills me. And that's what I like. Just like someone else may like a fancy watch or a fancy car, et cetera. I think the most important thing is to figure out what you like. And don't always listen to studies. Studies help a lot. They can help guide. But you need to test and learn, basically. And I think – let me give you an example of this. For example, you've probably heard or your audience probably heard like, hey, you know – uh, experiences fulfill people more than material goods, like a fancy car or watch. It's better to go on a vacation than have a nice watch, right? But that's the average result, right? You have to realize, like, if most people, let's say, if like, you know, 60 or 80% of people are extroverts, I don't know the exact number. If that's true, then if you ask most people, they're going to be like people that like to go out and do stuff, they are going to prefer to spend their money on doing stuff, like going out, being extroverted. But if you're in, if you're in the minority where you're not one of those people who enjoys that, and you're just listening to what everyone else is telling you, you're going to make, you're going to go on these vacations and be like, I didn't really like that that much. I actually would prefer to stay home and like have a nice watch and maybe go to a, like a local restaurant or something. I don't know. I'm just coming up with theories here, but you, you get my point. Like, don't just listen to what everyone else says. And I mean, data matters. Don't get me wrong. I'm the biggest proponent of data, but it's a guide. It's not like a foolproof thing. You need to really understand yourself. So turns out to send money guilt free. Fulfillment's the first one. The second thing you want to think about is what I call the 2x rule. And the 2x rule is very simple, right? Let's say you want to buy, a, let's say, a nice pair of dress shoes. You know, Let's say they're going to cost 300 pounds. You want to have them for a decade. You're going to have them for a long time. Um, but that's like a sport for you. That's a, that's, a bit, that's a bit more money than you'd spend on dress shoes. So what you do is you save an additional 300 pounds, so 2x, 600 pounds in total, and you take the other 300 pounds that you're not spending on the dress shoes and you invest it in stocks or you save it to eventually invest in real estate or you even donate it. There's a lot of things you can do to kind of get your mind out of this. So that's what I would say to think about is like find tricks you can use to like mentally get rid of the guilt. So you're not like, oh, I'm guilty. I'm spending this 300 pounds on this shoes. Like, oh, well, I'm also investing in my future. So that's great. Or I'm also helping a charity I care about. So anything like that would be, would be really useful. Where do you think the guilt comes from when we spend money? Why do you think it's there psychologically? Yeah, so I don't know as much about the UK, but I know in the US there's a lot of like messages out there like you should be spending less, you should be cutting your lattes, you should be like, and that message is being repeated so many times that people get into a space where anytime they spend money, they start getting in their heads a lot. I think that's a lot of it. Another thing's personality. I, some people just have a personality trait where it's really hard for them to spend money and that's I, that's much harder to get over. I don't know the way to do that. If, if you're like someone who just, you know, you just can't spend money no matter how rich you are. I'm not going to be able to help you with that. You're going to have to like look more into that. Um, but I think that's where it comes from. I think there's just a lot of guilt out there. There's a lot of guilt that we, we put on each other that's not necessary. I've got a bunch of friends. We're all working class, right? Northeast of the mm -hmm. UK, working class of the working class. And slowly mm -hmm. over time, we've managed to clamber our way bit by bit, probably up into middle or upper middle class or something like that. But man, your spending habits... I, actually, this isn't true. Some people's spending habits outpace their uh, movement through the class system. 
other people's lag behind and me and a ton of my friends are whatever dynamic it is that we have lag behind so badly so so badly we i remember <laughs> this one time a little while ago now i'm much better than this but as mid 20s right 26 27 i've been running this nightclub business for ages and it's really successful one of the biggest in the northeast of the uk then we start opening up other cities and whatever I remember I was in Asda, one of our supermarkets, and I was looking at the um, different types of yogurts that were available, and there was Asda's like finest range, which is the top of the range one, and then there was Asda's normal range. And I remember spending at least two minutes vacillating between whether or not I could treat myself to get the pack of four yogurts that was whatever, £1.65 more or something. And I, that was it was a real formative experience that I had on my own in, in Asda looking at some yogurts because I, I realized like at that moment – Dude, this, it simply does not fucking matter. And then over time, as you start to actually learn a little bit more, especially Naval's book, uh, Eric's book about Naval really helped me with this, that look, um, with those sort of decisions, just expedite them, optimize for satisficing, just get the decision done and be happy with the decision. And for me, a lot of the time, the happiest sort of decision that I can make is one that I do quickly. I actually take a lot of satisfaction from just, uh, yeah, fine, cool, that one. If I allow myself to sink into the decision for a lot longer, that paradox of choice comes up. I start finding myself being more of a maximizer than a satisficer. Um, but yeah, man, I, there's something about be, having that working class background and, and sort of coming through and you just never, I don't know, if money was not a, a, a problem growing up, but just you, you were always conscious of, of being frugal, right? And, and sort of not splurging. And there's something, I don't know whether it's hard-coded into your DNA. Uh, you can definitely get better over time, but it's very conscious for me to to spend money. That being said, same as you, if I'm out at dinner, I have absolutely no problem just going to town with crispy Brussels sprout side that's 15 <laughs> bucks for no reason at all because I just want to taste them. You know, mm-hmm. it is strange the way that we spend our money and the way that we have that. I think the, the psychological impact of that is um, is pretty unique. You had a story that I enjoyed about the Vanderbilts and their lifestyle creep. Can you tell people that story? Yeah, so the Vanderbilts, it's actually very funny. So Cornelius Vanderbilt, who was the original, I don't know, patriarch of the family, right? He grew his, he grew the fortune to like, I think it was $100 million or something in like the late 1880s. I can't remember the exact figures. And he gave it all to one of his sons, just one of his sons. He had two sons. Was that, sorry, was that the richest? Was he the richest person on the planet at that time? Or, I, or close he to? was up there. He was up there. I don't know if he was the richest. He might have been the richest. I can't remember the exact, but he's like top five for sure. He's top five, you know, of his era. And he's like, I'm not going to split my money because I know that's going to split the fortune. So I'm going to leave it all with my the son I trust the most. So he gave basically mostly all of it to one son. That son managed it well, and it doubled, basically. He just managed the railroad well. Like, everything went well, right? Um I think it was in railroads mostly, yeah. And so, but then that's where the problem started. In the next generation, that 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 family grew up knowing only, you know, think about it. Like Cornelius grew up with nothing, basically. His son grew up with kind of nothing, and then they got rich. But his son's son, right, Cornelius' grandson grew up in only opulence, right? So that next generation is where everything just went went haywire, and they just started spending like they. So I. I don't know if you knew this, but in New York City on, I think, Fifth Avenue, you used to have all these mansions. Now it's all just massive commercial buildings. Imagine mansions, people just walking up until literally the most expensive real estate just living there. They had all these mansions. All They threw up these parties. Like they had, There are stories about parties where they were on horseback. Like Everyone was on a horse in someone's house like 
dining, eating, like like network. I don't know how you would do that. You know, you ever been at a place where you have to hold like a you know a food and eat the food and drink at the same time? Imagine doing that on horseback. I can't even imagine they were doing that. They'd smoke like cigars rolled with hundred dollar bills. Remember, this is in the eighteen eighties or something. It was like absurd eighteen nineties or even early nineteen hundreds, whatever it was. And there's just this insane amounts of lifestyle creep, which is just unheard of. And it's not, I don't even say it's lifestyle creep. It was just the sense of like, well, they had a very high income and like the, the father, you know, Cornelius's son. So the second generation never really spent that much. But then the third generation is like, no, our spending should match our income. Right. And then they just matched. And then they basically lost, they lost almost everything in the great depression. They had to sell so many things. Like they sold a one house at like, you know, 1% of the value they bought it at, like just fire sale stuff. Like it was that bad. No one could afford any of these luxury goods. So they got wrecked. But that's kind of a great story about like what can happen when you're when your spending's uh, out of control. So, dude, I, that that shit blows my mind, and it, it is it is one of those things where you presume that dynasty wealth's just going to continue. You know, you hear these stories about whatever it is like uh, if Jeff Bezos drops a hundred bucks on the ground, it's quicker for him to earn it again than by his passive interest than it is for him to bend down and pick it up in half a second or something. So you do kind of think that wealth is this unbeatable thing, and I wonder whether. There must come a point, there simply must come a point where the critical mass of your wealth can outstrip essentially any desire to spend it shy of trying to pick up nation states. You know, if you've got 50 billion or something like that, I actually don't know whether it would be possible for you to... But the point is, going back to that, that this lifestyle creep, right, the fact that your uh, tastes can outstrip your ability to pay for them um over time and that's kind of the story that i was talking about with the with the working class thing and it does really seem to be sort of two types of people uh i can't remember who it was this was a morgan housel quote where he said um lebron james is rich the guy that writes his checks is wealthy mm-hmm. uh, and he's talking about the difference between although lebron james seems to be like a relatively smart businessman too the that sort of <laughs> yeah. ath- athlete mindset you know like some kid that maybe grows up in the hood or whatever and then mm-hmm. has never had cash but super keeping up with the joneses very much bothered about their labels and status and stuff like that um one of the things that i thought was interesting to do with lifestyle creep your one of your solutions to it is to kind of uh, mediate increases in wealth versus increases in spending which you can explain in a second take me through that but then also explain um how someone that's self-employed where those changes in income and wage aren't quite sort of as obvious to see you you just sort of get big chunks of cash maybe you're on dividends you're drawing down maybe you're on uh, a higher commission structure it's a little bit more difficult to do so how do people uh, protect themselves from lifestyle creep and then what do you do if you're self-employed yeah. So to protect yourself against lifestyle creep, I mean, I've actually run simulations on this. Like you imagine someone just getting raises over time and it's like you straight linear raises over time. Of course, that's not exactly how the world's going to work. But if you assume that and you say, okay, I'm on like a good, decent, let's say you're on a decent financial path. Now you're like on track to hit your retirement goals, whatever you're in a steady state, we'll call it an equilibrium. The question is, well, how much of my raises can I spend to stay on that track? And I find that on, I, mean, I show in the book, there's a table. It depends how much you're actually saving now. So if you're a really high saver now, you have to actually save even more of your raise than what you originally saved. And it's very counterintuitive, but we can go into that in a second. Um, basically, I say like roughly it, it converges to about 50%. So ironically, the number in the book is basically 50% because that's where most people saving. They have lower savings rates. And so if you save half of your raises or big bonuses, you can spend the other half and you, it's not going to affect your financial future, which means you're going to be able to keep your consumption consistent over your lifetime, right? If you don't do that, if you spend more than that, then you're at some point your consumption has to drop off. 
or you have to do something else or have some other income that comes later out of nowhere that, that offsets that. So that's one thing to think about. I think what you were talking about, like, you know, LeBron James is rich and the person who writes his checks is or is wealthy. Right. I think it's just like stock versus flow type thing, like like a LeBron James or someone has high income. They have a high flow, but that doesn't mean they have a high stock. Right. They have a, they don't have a bunch of wealth that's just paying them consistently. Right. So and I think the you know the premise of the book and I even was talking about earlier, the save invest continuum, that's the difference between, you know, the flow, which is your income and the stock, which is your investments. Right. And how that's going to lead to your flow. Right. So that's kind of the, the thing there. But I think the biggest way to kind of stop lifestyle creep is just to like. Make sure you don't. I mean, I I give some recommendations in the book. I think the fifty percent is about right and actually matches the two x rule. Ironically, so it's like very simple to remember. It's like half for you and half for future you. So if you're saving at least half of those raises for future you, you can keep doing that pretty consistently. Um, now, obviously, there are, there are edge cases where that's not true, but I think if you're doing that, that's you'll you'll be decently well off, right? So you don't have to be saving fifty percent of your total income, but if you're saving twenty percent now and then you get a raise, save half of that raise. There's a stat or a story that I heard around the government was struggling to get people in the UK to increase their pension contributions, but they knew that they needed to. Uh, and what they found was that there's a psychological, it's loss aversion, basically, right? That all coupled with anchoring bias a little bit that like, this is what I was at before. And now you're trying to what, take more away from me. Uh, but what they found was that if they suggested to people that when they get a raise, that a, a increased portion of the raise was contributed to their pension uh, people were just well up for ticking that off so i think that it works uh in terms of the stats it works financially but it also works psychologically as well so the pain of doing that of holding back on like money that you didn't have mm-hmm. is going to be significantly easier for everyone yeah that's why i say i think you have to be in a, a decent financial spot initially because if you feel like you're struggling to get by or you're like, you feel like you don't live the life you want. And then you get a raise. You're going to want to like spend all of that to get to where you want to be. Right. I'm not going to lie. Like you're going to feel that way. Right. But if you're like, Oh, my life's decent. I like this. This is good. And then you get one of these, what I call positive shocks or a raise or a bonus, then saving half, you can do that. Right. So I just, as long as you're mentally in a spot where you feel okay with what your current spending is and how you're saving and everything, that's when the raise and stuff will work. If you're in a spot where you're not, it's going to be really tough to only save 50. If you just feel like you're just living a subpar life compared to what you want to live. So what about renting versus buying? That's a very difficult question. I think it's probably one of the most difficult questions out there. And my, my long, my long story short conclusion is I think, you know, at least within the U S most people are going to buy. The question is not if, but when, and I think the main, there's two things to think about one societal reasons. It's like, you can't rent in certain neighborhoods. You want your kids to go to certain schools. You can't rent. Renters are allowed. There is a lot of stigma around renting versus buying. Um, that's one piece of it. The other t- thing, which is a big benefit of owning a home is like you do lock up your housing costs, right? Like you, you're not paying the market rent every single year. Like I, I'm, I've been a renter my whole life. So I've been paying the market rent every single year and going out. I do it basically once a year on average. Um, and I go and pay the market rate. Right. And so because of that, you know, rents have gone up and so I'm paying more there. Now someone say, okay, well, if you'd locked in a mortgage and let's say 2012, I didn't have money, but let's just say I did have money to do that. You know, I could have locked in something great, but I would have to pay for, you know, the taxes on that, the maintenance. I couldn't move. I couldn't be mobile. There's a lot of things with the, today's world where everything's remote. It's a little bit easier to, to do that. But back in the day, I didn't know if I was going to live and I started in San Francisco then I was in Boston. Now I'm in New York. So I've jumped around a lot. So in the book, I kind of discuss all the specifics of well, how much do you have to have ready to, to buy or versus rent and all these type of things. But those are the main issues I think about. 
And even the people I know that are like very anti-renters, I think a lot of those people end up buying anyways. And if you see like home ownership rates generally go up with income as well. So for the most part, people end up buying. Um, does that mean you have to buy? No. But I think a lot of people, even those who are like very anti-buying, eventually buy too. Because they know it's like you're, it's, you're leveraging too. Like you think about it, you're – and right now with high inflation, we have very high inflation. I think the print today was 8.5% in the United States. If you're – Payment is fixed, but inflation's high. Assuming you're capturing some of that inflation through asset prices, through your job, you're getting raises that are matching inflation at least, then you're gonna be paying back that that payment is fixed, but your income's going up. So it's like imagine, you know, I think the example given the book is my grandparents, um, their payment was two seventy a month when they they bought a home for like twenty seven thousand back in like nineteen seventy two in California. <laughs> a long time ago. I know it's crazy money. Seven acres back then, with a pool yeah, on the side. No, not seven yeah. acres. It's yeah, not yeah. A, a major house, but they they bought this house. And they're paying 270 a month, but 10 years later, by 1982, that payment had been cut in half in real terms. If you just just adjust for inflation, the same person would you be paying half. Imagine your rent going down by half in the next 10 years. That's what could happen. Obviously, that was a very high inflation period, but from now for the next 10 years, we could be experiencing that right now. And then 10 years from now, that payment's lower because you locked in when everyone else didn't. So that's something to think about. One of the things that I like about home ownership at least with the way that i am in the uk again at disadvantage of being from the northeast of england uh bad weather uh not fantastic international flights and this working class mindset around spending money where you focus obsessively on yogurts but one of the advantages is that the value that you can get from a property is insane man like i i've got i'm just going through on my sixth house house purchase now right some of those are five beds. The most recent ones are four bed with an ensuite in every single room. None of them have ever been more expensive than half the average house price of the UK. If you go on rightmove.co.uk, right? Mm -hmm. I think the average house price is about three forty-five, and the most that I've spent on any properties uh, one seventy, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I've got my house that I live in uh, with two uh, of my housemates that are like my buddies that live there as well. Um. So that, I understand one of the challenges people have, if I buy a house, then that restricts my freedom, especially if you're young, as people are now marrying later, starting families later, perhaps wanting to be this nomadic entrepreneur thing. Cool. Um, again, it depends on how much headroom you've got above what you're spending, so on and so forth. But I highly, highly recommend for people, if they are keen on putting money into real estate, if they like that security, Spending your money by getting a house with at least two other lettable rooms means that you basically zero out a lot of the risk, pretty much all of the risk, right? So the property that I have back in Newcastle, yes, I'm not benefiting from the fact that I'm living there, which would have been significantly cheaper, but I'm also not losing money by having that property continue to take over because I've got two guys that live there who pay me their rents for each of their rooms. Now, <laughs> I'm in an Airbnb in Austin at the moment uh, paying £3,000 a month because it's a long stay Airbnb. So that, I mean, that stings, you know, I'm paying the mortgage on the house at home, plus I'm paying whatever three grand to mm -hmm. be here, but it still makes sense for me financially. It still ticks over, it keeps everything moving. So yeah, to try and sort of fly the flag for someone who really likes uh, real estate as an investment strategy, um, but also wanted that freedom and that liberty to be able to move around, thinking about getting a property which you can then I don't know whether you call it sublet in America or use you know, mm -hmm. yep, lodges yeah, or tenants or whatever that's in there. And by doing it this way, I've got a room in a house in the UK where if all hell breaks loose, if I've got a catastrophe with the family, if I need to get home for a wedding or whatever it is, that's always mine. That's always there. 
And there's a cleaner that goes every two weeks for forty pounds, and she makes sure that the entire house, you know, it's not degrading over time, that it's being kept mm-hmm. in good. It's perfect, and that that to me is a real lovely blend of uh, of the two. Obviously, again, you need some capital to put up in order to be able to make that work. You need to be in the right place. Mm-hmm. If you're living in London or slightly more expensive cities, you're going to struggle because you're just not going to be able to get on the ladder quite as easily. Uh, but that's one of the solutions that I've found. Yeah, everything that's an issue with this is always relative to your situation. So it's really hard for me to give blanket statements when like, yeah, if you're living in, you know, the northeast of the UK, it's very different than living in London, very different living in New York City, very different living in like, you know, Tennessee or something, you know, rural Tennessee or something in the United States. So there's all these different factors you have to take into account. But I, I agree. Let's say that someone hasn't been interested in investing at all. They've just been spending their money like a, a normal human. What do you say to somebody when they say that they can't be bothered to work out investing? Why is it for me? I don't really get it. It seems like a lot of work. I don't want to do it. Um, think about your future self. I think you have to be selfish. I think you have to, because if you actually look at the data on the ask people about savings motivations, why they save, save and invest money, and the one that works, they can be like, oh, what if you want to save for a vacation? Doesn't work. Save for your children. Doesn't work, surprisingly. The one that does is save for your future self. Like imagine they've done these experiments where they take your face and they like age you with this like photo AI aging stuff. So you see, you see what you look like as an old person. And I remember this went around at one point. Remember there's like these Chinese app. Yeah, it, it was yeah, definitely the Chinese that. trying to do yeah, facial ID on everyone. App, but yes, yeah. But imagine that you see yourself as an old person. You can now imagine, wow, I'm going to be an old person doing all this stuff. So maybe I should be saving for my future. Maybe I need to have income. And so in the US, you know, if you don't have pension or anything like that, you're not going to have any income besides Social Security. And so unless you're willing to live on that type of lifestyle, then you're probably going to need to save some money. So that's the thing. It's like really what type of lifestyle do you want to live? And if you can live a really cheap lifestyle now and you're like, I'm going to live that forever and I don't need to save as much, then fine. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with being frugal and living a really low cost lifestyle if that's what you want. Like I don't shame people for wanting to be super frugal. I don't. That's completely fine. I just don't think that's a great solution for everyone because I don't think that's true for everybody, right? And so figuring out like what works for you is what's most important. I tried uh, stock investing a few years ago. Um, I probably should have just left that fucking Ethereum in and that would have fixed all of these problems. But <laughs> um, I, I and what I found very, very quickly was I don't think that I have the uh, mindset to be a trader, certainly not one that picks stocks. And the neuroticism that I found myself dealing with around having a thousand pounds in Activision and a thousand pounds in Apple and, you know, regularly seeing swings in an entire portfolio of thousands of pounds per day uh, across a not a particularly huge portfolio. You only need, you know, like 10 or 20 grand and you can have a couple of bad days and you're like, I, I, th- my net worth just went down by a thousand pounds today. That's pretty terrifying um so yeah picking individual stocks makes that a lot worse however since then i've taken morgan morgan's uh, and your suggestion and i'm just in the s&p at the moment i don't obsessively check my etoro every day um you're not a fan of picking individual stocks presumably for a more data-driven reason than mine but my point is that i think for a lot of people uh, the psychological impact of kind of like being in individual stocks is a pretty high toll to pay as well. Yes, I agree. So there's a there's two, there's really three reasons, I guess, why I'm not a big fan of individual stocks. The first one is one that maybe your audience has heard. It's what I call the performance argument and the financial argument. Basically, most stock pickers, active managers, whatever you want to call them, don't beat their benchmarks, don't beat the market. So let's say the benchmarks S&P 500, they don't beat the market after three to five years after fees, right? And after everything they do, they just don't beat the market. Why? 
because on average, if you think of there's fees, right? So imagine, let's say half the people beat the market, half don't. Remember, they're buying and selling from each other. There's a very theoretical argument it goes back to, I think, I think William Sharp came up with this argument. Basically, theoretical. Half the, remember, they're buying and selling from each other. So half are going to win, half are going to lose. And then after you take out fees, it drops that, right? Like if only half can be up and half can be down, then like on every trade, then like only half can be winners, half can be losers. But then there's fees and transaction costs. So there's like some slippage in the system. So it's going to be less than half, right? So that's why only like 25% can outperform their benchmarks. And you don't have to calculate all that. There's that they actually already do this. Something called the SPIVA reports, S-P-I-V-A, SPIVA. And they basically do this for you. They look at every equity market across the planet. And you can say, let me see the three-year. Let me see the five-year. How did these people perform? And in some markets, some people do outperform a little bit better than others. But on average, it's like 70 80% won't outperform over like a three- to five-year period. Is it kind of like a gambler that is able to beat the odds in the casino consistently over time? That the longer that you decide to stay in the market, so to speak, if you're picking individual stocks, you're part of the 25% of year one but then you're also part of the 25% of year two, and then you're also part of the 25% of year three that didn't end up being beaten by the market. So over time, consistently, you actually end up being a like a real outlier anomaly if you haven't lost money at some point during that period. Yeah, yeah, that that's a way of thinking of it. I I don't like to use gambling because it's like a negative expected value game. I would say investing is positive expected value. But what we're talking about here is obviously, as you said, the relative value. Like you can still make money. Like you can pick stocks and make money. You're just going to make possibly most likely going to make less than if you just put it into like an S&P 500 or a world index fund, something like that. Right. So that's the first argument. It's very well known. The second argument, the one I personally like more is what I call the existential argument. And that's basically like you don't know if you're any good at stock picking. And like there's a lot of data to show this. Like they found that like. They can only like they can identify skill in about 10% of stock pickers. So let's say you can identify the top 10% and you can identify the bottom 10%. That's 20% out. That means there's 80% or four out of five people. You could play this game for a while and not know if you're good. And I think let's let's use a LeBron James example. If myself and LeBron James went to the basketball court, you would know within minutes who has skill and who doesn't, right? You could tell pretty pretty quickly, right? Who's who's good and who's not. But if me and LeBron James were picking stocks. We wouldn't know for years, maybe. Maybe LeBron's a great stock picker. Who knows, right? Just we just picking stocks. We have the same amount of money. We have to just throw the capital. You may not know for a year, two years, five years. And one of us could just get lucky. One of us could just have one thing in our portfolio that just mooned, and we would beat the other person because of that one random pick, and it got lucky. So that's the difference. Like, there's a lot more luck in stock picking than there is in like, I don't know, computer programming or basketball or something where the skill is very identifiable. So that's the second argument which I don't like. And what you were talking about with like, oh, I had a thousand dollars in Activision. Like, why was I obsessing with my portfolio? I think what it does, you you start to identify with the investment, right? So when you pick the S and P 500, or let's say you pick a world index uh, equity or stock index fund, when you pick a world stock index fund. That's the default choice. That's like, that's like, oh, here you go. Here's your choice. You're like, I didn't choose that. So if the market goes down, it's not your fault, right? It's out of your hands. But as soon as you say, you know what? I'm going to just deviate a little. I'm going to pick Activision. I'm going to pick Apple. Now you've made a choice. Now it's your fault if it goes down, right? It's because you made the choice. You're the idiot who made that choice. But if it goes up, you're a genius, right? So you see, it's all an identity. I think that's probably the most compelling argument because you're going to start identifying with your investments. You're going to be obsessing over the thousand. Like I remember I've done this too. I had like 2% of my, my uh, wealth in like individual stocks. And yet like the 98% was moving up and down like magnitudes more like, you know, or is a magnitude more than the 2%. Yet I'm obsessing over that because I picked it like some idiot, you know, it's silly. It's a very silly thing to think about, but you obsess over your active picks. You're not going to obsess over your S&P 500 index fund, whether it's dropping, you know, in the same way, I think. You had a, so. a couple of stories about even you, somebody that lives in the Fin Twitter financial advice world, uh, and you flubbed a few uh, stock picks recently. Can you tell everyone about those? 
Yeah, so I've done, so I remember I have a whole, like, this is how tough, tough this problem is. So I have a whole chapter in my book, chapter 12, called Don't Buy Why You Shouldn't Buy Individual Stocks. Yet I have 1% of my net worth in individual stocks. And I say, I say, hey, if you're doing it for fun or something, that's fine. And like 5%, whatever, do it, have fun. And that's what I do, basically. So I keep 1%. I did it with some friends. And I bought two tech companies. I'm not going to say that I'm not here to pump my bags. They're down massively. They're down bad. <laughs> and so one's down, like one IPO did 19, went down to like six. It's not doing great. The other one actually was at 15, went to 32. I was feeling pretty good. And now it's down at like seven. So that one's down like worse than all the others. And so... They're down bad, and I have them. I, I'm sitting on these losses. I might sell at some point, and you know, take the you know the the loss harvest or whatever. But we'll see. So I'm saying it's tough for everybody, even me, the person. I wrote a little chapter on this, and I still do it. But like, I do it for fun, and I think it's okay to do it for fun if you want to get out of your system. I just don't think you should do it with the bulk of your wealth because it's a tough game. It's really really tough. Don't play that game. So okay, people aren't supposed to buy the dip. We've explained that yep. that waiting yep. to waiting to buy the dip causes you to wait for so long that you have missed out on potential gains to move up. You've maybe gained a 20% intraday move, but you've lost mm-hmm. a 60% over the last year increase. You should have gone back and done that. What mm-hmm. should people do if they're not buying the dip? It should just be, just keep buying. I mean, it's the name of the book. It's like buy over time. Like it's that simple. Um, and what do I, so it's actually kind of ironic because when I say don't buy the dip, I'm not saying that if, if you're in a dip and you happen to have cash, buy the dip, right? However, you shouldn't hold cash waiting for it, but those are, they're very different, right? Holding cash and waiting for a dip is bad, but buying a dip is good. So they're very different because let's say by chance you're selling a company and by chance the money hits your account on that day, right? And by chance there's a 10% intraday drop in the market. That's probably going to be a deal of some sort relative to other days, right? So, I mean, of course the market could keep dropping. That's of course possible, but you just got a 10% discount, right? And if you have a lot of money, get invested, right? That's the thing. And on average, that's going to make you more wealth. Of course, it's riskier to do that. Of course, it's riskier to do that. There's no debate there. And if you're worried about risk, you're probably just putting too much money into a too risky of a portfolio. So you need to figure out, okay, maybe I shouldn't be putting into 100% stocks then. Maybe I should be adding bonds or adding other things that are diversifying my wealth. So that's my counter. People are like, I can't put it on. It's too risky. Then it's your portfolio. Then put it in a less risky portfolio and just put it in now and then just wait, you know? So that's what I would say to people. So about buy the dip. What's the nuance around dollar cost averaging? And I think it's dollar cost averaging, and then is it like average pricing in or something? There's two different ways of doing it. So technically right now in the financial community, there is a, there's two definitions for dollar cost averaging and there's no way, like we can't, I think the genie's out of the bottle. We can't put it back in basically. So the original definition, my understanding, Benjamin Graham, dollar cost averaging just means buying over time. You're buying. So like, let's say you have a 401k here in the United States. I don't know if you guys have like a defined contribution plan, whatever you guys call that. You're putting in money every time you get paid. You're not taking your money and waiting. It's not like you got, you know, let's say you got a hundred thousand dollars from selling a company, a hundred thousand pounds. You would put that money into the market right away. That's called like a lump sum investment, but you're basically buying like as soon as you can. That's called dollar cost averaging. The other definition, which I in my book call average in, I'm trying to change the terms here, is like if you had that 100000 you say, I'm not going to put it all in today. I'm going to put in you know $10,000 a month for the next 10 months until it's in, right? So I'm going to I'm going to slowly average into the market, right? The problem is that's also called dollar cost averaging. So when you have two different names for like, or the same name for two different things, it's very confusing to people. Because like, like Nick, you said lump sum beats dollar cost averaging, but then you said like nothing can be dollar cost averaging. Well, it's like, no, that's a, those are different terms and I'm trying to fix that. 
it's really tough. Um, I don't think it's going to get fixed, to be honest with you. I try to come on podcasts and tell people, like, let's just pick a term. I don't care which one wins. Let's just pick a term and go with it. I personally think the original definition should win. So dollar cost averaging just means buying over time. Just keep buying. They're almost synonyms for all practical purposes, you know. I mean, dollar cost averaging technically has, you know, what is it, six syllables and just keep buying as four. So we can just reduce the syllable. You just reduce the syllables by 33%. Why not do that, you know. So let's just call it that, so. When it comes to the person that's maybe got the windfall, their concern might be that if they put all of their money in right now, oh, well, what if there's going to be a big pullback at some point in the future? If I do that over time, I'm going to continue to get. But the again, the point is, what was that? Uh, what's that meme where it says uh, the 100 year moving average for the stock market looks pretty good? <laughs> yes, that's ramp. That's ramp capital. Yep. It's amazing. Yes. Yeah. So over time, it everything is sweet. And I guess if you have a long enough time horizon, your hundred grand that just goes in today is better than that hundred grand spread over the next ten months at ten grand a month. Yeah, yeah. So the the issue is on average, like eighty percent of the time you're gonna be better off by putting the money in right away than like in the case where it's crashing. So like you're like, well, I'm not I don't care about that. Okay, then don't. Then just pay you're gonna just realize the market's probably gonna go up over this time. You're probably gonna lose a little. And if you're okay with that, do it. I don't think there's anything wrong with averaging into the market. If you're comfortable with that and that's what makes you comfortable. Do it. Don't do things you don't want to do. But there's so many people that don't want to take the plunge and they just haven't looked at the data. And it's like generally you're probably going to be okay. So that's that's my counter to that. The other thing too, behaviorally, the only time when averaging in beats putting all the money in right away versus the lump sum method where you could slowly wade in when that's better is when the market's falling. That's the only time it's true. Think about it, right? If you put all the money in now and it crashes, that's bad. So if you had, if instead you had just averaged in, you're going to be buying into a falling market. But that's when you're least enthusiastic to buy. When the market's dropping 10%, you're like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to, I'm going to wait till the dust settles, right? And you do that, you wait till the dust settles. It's March 2020, you're waiting, I'm going to wait. And then next, you know, six months later, it's a new all-time high, right? And then you're like, oh crap, the dust settled and now I just missed this massive rally. So my counter to that is like, don't do that. It's really tough. Like the hardest time to buy is the only time it outperforms, like behaviorally. So that's why I say just buy now, because if you're in the case where the market's falling over time, you're not going to want to buy anyway. So it's like you're not going to you're not going to even follow the time when the, the time when it matters. You're not going to follow it. So you said earlier on about the look that's involved in investing. Uh, how much luck is involved, and then how can people mitigate the impact of luck on their investments? I think the best way to mitigate luck is just kind of your asset allocation, what how you invest your money, right? So it's like. Are you well diversified, right? Do you have emergency fund? Do you have all sorts of things that help you plan and prepare for the future? Of course, you can't know everything, right? If you're, you know, if you rely on like, oh, well, I own like three businesses that are restaurants and then COVID comes and there's lockdowns and you hit, there's nothing you can do. That's like some, that's like an act of God for all practical purposes. There's at some point, there's nothing you can prepare for. There's certain things you can't prepare for, but you know, you can probably do something that's going to be decent, right? So I say like diversify, find ways to, you know, to have your wealth so that you're not worried about some crazy scenario. If everything concentrated in Apple or Activision, something like that, then you can get hit really bad and it would be really tough, right? So that type of stuff happens, right? And I think there's this, there's this quote, like, you know, uh, concentrate to get rich, but diversify to stay rich, right? And I think that's true, but it depends how rich do you want to be? I think you can get relatively rich, like, through diversification. I don't think you need to concentrate. If you want to be a billionaire, yes, that's completely true. You want to be like a hundred millionaire, even a 10 millionaire, you probably need some sort of concentration at some point in your life. But if you're like, yeah, I'd be fine with like 2 million bucks and like, that'd be a nice life. I could live my life with $2 million, 2 million pounds, whatever it is. 
you probably can do that through diversification, just buying over time. And that's the thing what I'm trying to get at. Like for most people, they're probably gonna be fine, have a great life, live a decent life with that type of lifestyle. And it's much easier than trying to concentrate and then you get hit with some crazy risk and then you lose more money or something. You know, it's really tough that way. So what do most people get wrong during a crisis? I think the thing during a crisis, I mean, obviously it's tough. I, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and say like, oh yeah, March, 2020 was a cakewalk. It wasn't. I watched, I, I lived through it. It was my first real big crash that where I had money invest, where I saw my wealth dropping 10% one day and then up 2% and then down another 10%. You know, I saw this happen. What I think people get wrong is, you know, I think my favorite investment quote is, um, Fear has a greater grasp on human judgment than does the impressive weight of historical evidence, you know, and that's from Jeremy Siegel, right? And so that it's that fear grasping us. And it's like the world's going to end. We're never going to get better. Ever. And I think humans are more resilient than people think. And don't get me wrong. There are cases where markets, one market goes down badly and something, you know, Russia went down 80% in like a month this year during, you know, early 2020 or sorry, early 2022. And that type of stuff happens. But if you're diversified, if you don't, if you own only Russian stocks, then yes, you're screwed. If you only own U.S. stocks, you could get screwed. Diversify across other, you know, asset classes, and you'll be fine. And in the case where, oh, what if all those drop? Once again, it's one of these apocalyptic scenarios. It's not going to matter what your investment portfolio is doing. You're going to have much bigger problems. So that's my counter. What thing about a crisis? Like, yes, there's fear. Yes, there's going to be a 10 year period in the U.S. or Europe or et cetera, where these assets don't perform well. They may even lose to inflation. This has happened before. I, I can guarantee in my lifetime. Not guarantee. I would say very high likelihood that there's a 10-year period where U.S. stocks have no return after dividends and inflation. And I don't know when that's going to happen. We could already be have started it for all we know, right? We're already down from some point. We could 10 years from now, we'd be like, wow, yeah. Remember when I said that 10 years ago? It could happen. But it's not about wondering what could happen. It's looking at history and history generally. You know, it's up and to the right over the long term, and just keep buying and see what happens. You know. What about working out when you should sell? Tough question. I think there's three times we can sell. First one is just kind of a tactical thing that you should just do, at least in, in the U.S. There's a t We have an annual tax season. I'm guessing you guys do too. You just sell when you're rebalancing, right? You're like trying to rebalance your portfolio. Oh, my stocks did really well this year. My bonds did badly. Okay, I need to sell some stocks to get to bonds. There are cases to do that. I don't recommend that. I would say if you're going to do that because there could be tax implications, I would say try to what to do is instead of selling, if you're still accumulating income, buy more of the underweight asset. So let's say your stocks went up a lot and your bonds didn't. Throughout the years, you notice this, oh, wow, it's going up. Just buy more bonds and less stocks just to kind of get them back into the – that's just easier and you're not going to do – there's no tax effects. So that's the first time. Uh, the second time is if you're like in a concentrated position, you need to kind of get out of that. And you're like, hey, this is way too concentrated. I need to sell at least a little bit of this. Let's what say do you mean when you say concentrated? Company. Like let's say you're at, a, you're at a company and you've gotten like RSUs or stocks. You've got like private stock from this company. It, it IPOs and now like 80% of your net worth is in this company, right? Now, I'm not saying sell it all. I don't agree with that. I think selling it all can be very risky mentally because if you sell it all and then it triples or it goes up 10x and you're like, oh, look, like oh, we're all the world partner over here and Chris is the idiot who sold all of the, you know, the Apple stock because he's an Apple engineer and he sold it all. Don't do that, right? But sell enough to kind of lock in your lifestyle and then let the rest ride if you want after that or kind of figure out what what's that, the mix for you, right? I don't know exactly what it is, but I'm not, I'm not a fan of like sell. I'm not a fan of one or nothing decisions. I think it's very scary. So don't keep it all, but also don't sell it all. So find that some good mix. That's the second thing, right? You're in a concentrated position. The last time is 
you're going to have to sell if you need to fund your lifestyle. That's the whole point. That's the whole point of life. You know, we're here to, you know, you want to fund your lifestyle. You want to go get a nice car. You want to get a nice watch. You want to go to, a, oh, I'm going to do this big vacation. And you need to sell stuff. That's the point. I know my book's called Just Keep Buying, but at some point you're going to have to sell and you're going to have to sell in order to fund your lifestyle. So remember that. That's the point of money. We're not here just to accumulate a bunch of money and then die. Like that's not the point of life at all. And I don't want to give that impression, right? I really am about, you know, people living the lives they want to live. I just think there's, op- there's more optimal ways to do that over time. Have you got any idea how much of people's pensions slash savings on average most people end up dying with? Uh, it, so in the United States, I think those in their 60s, I think the average was 300,000. In their 70s, I think it was like 340. It, it goes up basically every decade. Only in the 90s, I think it went down a little. But I also think we're also getting to generational effects. The people who died in their 90s in these studies were probably in the greatest generation in the Great Depression. They probably didn't invest as much as people who die in their 60s. So there's generational things there. But on average, like it goes up over time. And I think one of the most shocking facts that I discovered when I was looking to like retirement data is like only one in like six or one in seven retirees is pulling down principal, right? So imagine, you know, in a given year, they're living off their dividend capital gains or investment returns and their social security in the US and they're not selling down any assets. I think the most shocking set I've ever learned was, so Michael Kitsis did this analysis where basically like you are more likely to forex your wealth over 30 years following just the 4% rule. So let's say you had a million bucks. You take out 4% the first year, so 40K in spending. The next year, you kind of adjust for inflation. You take out another 4%. You're more likely to forex your wealth over 30 years than to go below your starting principal. So by the end, imagine you start with a million. You're more likely to have 4 million or more than you are to have under a million after 30 years. That's what's crazy. There's a lot of retirees that think, oh my gosh, how am I going to, am I going to outlive my money? And then it's like, oh no, you're actually richer than you've ever been. And like, you can't even keep up and your spending goes down in retirement too. So it's like really kind of shocking. These old people are so rich and they have no idea that it was going to happen. And then their wealth keeps growing. Like, you know, and that's, that's something that's kind of interesting to me. Like I'm looking at the data, like we're talking about this retirement crisis. Don't get me wrong. There is a subset of people that are really struggling. We should find policy to help them. But a lot of retirees are not struggling in the same way. And I think it's, unfair or unrealistic to like paint them paint this like oh there's this massive retirement crisis everyone's gonna be starving on the streets when it's like i don't see that happening you know in the data at least so what was that story about the guy who won the lottery that story's crazy jack whitaker that's one of my favorite stories so uh the guy basically what happened was you know he's watching he went to like or it was in west virginia yeah, so there's a story yeah so Jack Whitaker, they're in West Virginia. The the it was like the Powerball or whatever it was. I can't even remember the name of the lottery. But there's tickets are selling like crazy. 15 tickets a second or something. You know, 15, 15, 50, 45 more. You know, people just caught lottery fever. It's going crazy. Everyone's like, oh, there's all this money. So this guy named Jack Whitaker buys a ticket, goes home to his wife. They're watching the Powerball. They have five out of the six numbers. They're like, oh, they're like, like, oh my gosh, like this is amazing. We won hundred thousand dollars. Like, you know, it's it's some good money, but it's not like the, they didn't win the jackpot, right? So they go to sleep, you know, they're like happy, whatever. And they say, okay, we'll figure that out tomorrow. They go to sleep. That's it. Okay. The next morning he gets up, he's doing his morning coffee. Jack looks at the TV and he sees, oh my gosh, they missed announced one of the numbers. He looks back at his ticket. He's just won the largest jackpot. He actually had the winning ticket. Won the largest single jackpot. They didn't have to split it with anyone in history. It's like $317 million, $300 million after taking the lump sum in taxes. I think he has like 160, 180 million. I don't remember the exact figures in the book, but it's all in there. He has all this money and you know, you're thinking like, wow, like, oh, Nick, I already know what's going to happen, right? He's going to have all this bad, you know, all this bad stuff happens. His granddaughter dies of a drug overdose. He ends up, Jack Whitaker himself ends up getting addicted to like trying to pay women for sex. He's like drunk all the time. Like all these bad things happen. You're like, oh, Nick, I knew this. You know, it's just another lottery winner story. But you don't. Here's the, here's the trick. 
Jack Whitaker was already rich before he won the lottery. He was worth $17 million. He owned his own construction company, right? And that's when you realize that's the thing that money can do to people. This man lived in – he lived in Virginia. It's not like he's living in like New York City penthouse where $17 million could like – it doesn't go as far. He was living in a place where he could basically do whatever he wanted. He could have done all the stuff he was already doing, right? But as soon as he got the money, it changed him. And I think that's a important lesson there about like what how money can affect people. And so to like think about like when is enough for you and like realize that. Like I don't even understand why he was playing the lottery if I'm being completely honest. I think it was more of a social thing and then he won the lottery and it consumed him completely. What do you mean when you say people need to know when enough is enough for you? I mean, this is a great question. It's just about figuring out like at what point are you going to be satisfied and like, okay, hey, here's like the level of like consumption I want so that once I get here, I stop. Because if you don't, you're going to keep chasing that. You're going to say, oh, I'm not richer friends and they're doing this or they own this or they're, oh, they sometimes fly private. I should sometimes fly private. You're going to keep getting there. You're going to keep following that to a point where you'll never get out and you're going to always want more money. So, and I've seen it happen so many times in terms of in the data I've seen like psychologically, I understand why it happens. Like there's always someone richer, right? Every, every single person besides like, you know, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are like, can point to somebody like that person's rich, right? And they because they they flop back and forth, use their riches all the time, right? So ignore those two, but like everyone else can point to them. Even Warren Buffett can be like, I'm not even that rich anymore. Look at these people, you know. So it's kind of crazy, but like as long as you can always point to other people, you're always you're never gonna feel rich. And I think the example I use in the book is Lloyd Blankfein, who's uh ex-CEO of Goldman Sachs, billionaire, obviously very rich. He says, I'm not, he's like, I'm not rich, I'm well to do or something. He's like, cause you know why? Because all his friends, he's hanging out with David Geff and Jeff Bezos. He's hanging out with people that are 10, 15, 100 times more wealthy than he is, and he doesn't feel rich relative to them. And I get that. He can't go buy a $600 million super yacht like Jeff Bezos can, right? And so I get that feeling, and you're going to say, well, that doesn't make sense. He's a billionaire. But it's like he's doing a relative comparison, right? And I would say like, you know, and I the, the example I give in the book is, you know, to be in the top 10% of wealth in the world, you need roughly $100,000. I think it's like 93,000 US. So let's say 100,000 pounds, right? If I say, if you have over 100,000 pounds, you're rich, right? You're in the top 10% of the world, you're rich, right? You say, but Nick, that's not fair. You can't compare me to someone in the developing world who's like a farmer or something. That's not fair. Well, guess what? Lloyd Blankfein's going to say the same thing about you. He's going to say, you can't compare me to these average people who work these average jobs or whatever. Like, you can't compare me to them. I, you have to compare me to like, you know, Jeff Bezos and all these other people. These are my friends, right? That, that argument, it's obviously a little ridiculous, but it's kind of true. You're making the same argument. We're just cutting hairs over where's the point. Like, oh, why can't we compare you to a, a farmer, you know, a developing farmer somewhere in the world? Why can't we do that? You know, a farmer developing nation. Why not? You're like, oh, but that's not fair. Why Why not? Tell me why. It's the same reason why you, why Lloyd Blankfein is making the same argument. It's just we're cutting hairs. So I think people will never feel rich. So you have to identify as rich earlier in your life. Like I, for my age, for my age. I identify as rich, not because I'm, I'm not even a millionaire, not a millionaire at all, but I have to do that. And if I don't do that, I'm going to keep chasing money my whole life to the point where I, I lose myself and I'm, I'm worried about that. And so I hope I don't do that. So I have to realize I'm a rich citizen of the globe and like think about the privilege I have here and what the type of impact I can make. And so I think you have to remind yourself of that. And if you don't, you can really get lost in it. So that's what I say. I don't say this is like a brag. I'm not, that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to, to get myself to think right. Otherwise I may ruin my life in some way and i don't know but that's kind of my thinking it's a message to yourself yes exactly reinforcing yeah dude i i keep having this conversation with people especially since i've been out here in austin and austin is a very interesting city it's a city where it's cool to work hard and very uncool to work very hard it's a city where it's cool to be rich and very uncool to tell people that you're rich like or it's kind of um i think because 
there's so many new people here that and there's a lot of money everyone's very very conscious of people that are sort of flashing their cash a lot and yeah there doesn't seem to me to be a healthy movement culture mindset uh promulgated message about enough being enough right about you are worth a million dollars almost every message that you hear from rap music to personal development to the sort of memes that you see online to hustle culture to Gary Vee almost everybody says well if you've got a million that means that it's easier for you to double that to get to two million right there's this video of Patrick Bet Davids where he's talking about uh I, I always think about stuff in doubles it's like you know it's like 16 32 64 128 256 I'm like mm-hmm. Okay, what, like what that the this sort of autistic view of numbers that completely actually removes them from their purpose and the framing. Like maybe there's some people who genuinely take a lot of pleasure from playing the game of the numbers on the screen. Probably, probably are. But I think a lot more people, like you suggested, are genuinely existentially attached to their sense of self worth based on the amount of riches that they have. And it really, really fascinates me, the, the desire for people to be seen as rich, what it means to be rich, and what it means to keep up with the Joneses and stuff like that. And I, I really do think, on one side, me vacillating about my yogurt choices is uh, a, a weakness. But on the flip side of that, me and almost all of the friends that I've got never thought that we would be here in any case. Mm-hmm. We didn't expect, you know, it's the position that you want to be in when you get to be able to do things and you don't have to worry about whether you cover dinner this evening and oh you can pay me back next time and you you know not having money worries is fantastic but that's the materialism set point that i get to and i do i understand why people like to watch videos of you know like the nelk boys like steve will do it and the guys flying private around the world like it's fucking cool and steve's going and dropping all of this cash and stuff like that and you go well yeah that is that is cool but you can get probably 95%, 90% of his life enjoyment with 10% or 5% of his net worth. Like the things mm-hmm. that genuinely add a lot of value to his life probably aren't the private jets. They're probably not that. It's mostly the time freedom and the ability to choose what he, to do what he wants, when he wants, with who he wants for as long as he wants and no one gets to tell him otherwise. And you can do mm-hmm. that at like 120th or 1% probably of where he is. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I just think that they're... I'm looking forward to a more holistic hustle culture message coming out over the next 10 years. And I'm pretty sure that it's going to happen. Well, there'll be a backlash at some point when people are like, this is too crazy that we have to do all this stuff, you know? And I think that's, I I think you hit the nail on the head there. It's like figuring out what you want. It's like, actually I have a mentor who's like, tells me like, you know, yeah, you want to fly private? Like, do you realize like you have to really, really hate first class and, and, and the, you know, the cost go exponentially to go private to rent private. And then from rent private to like you're chartering to then like I own the plane, right? There's all these, like, I, you know, I'm sharing whatever it's like the, the cost go exponentially for like, obviously very small marginal benefits. Now someone's like, well, I would never fly, you know, that's fine. If you want to do a status thing and that's maybe you're getting money, you're getting some sort of utility off the status of flying private. That's fine. But like, no one's gonna care i you know i get it but like most people don't think like that and i think it's kind of it's interesting you know so what does that actual and perceived relative income graph mean because i was looking at that and this is as you go up your relative and uh, perceived income uh moves around which i thought was pretty fascinating 
Yeah, I believe it's from an MIT study. Maybe you could throw it up but somewhere. Maybe it's here. So I'll put it. I'm just messing with it. <laughs> um, so there's an MIT study, and basically it showed that, like, you know, as your income goes up, right, your where you perceive you are in the distribution does not follow with it. So people who are really poor know they're kind of poor. As you kind of get to middle class, that's usually pretty good. And then as you get above the 50% line, people in the 90th percentile are even like, oh, I'm like at the 60th percentile. I know all these other, you know, because they probably know a handful of really, really rich people, really high income people. And they're like, oh, I'm not as rich as them. So I'm like at the 60th percentile. Everyone's like, no, you're at the 90th percentile. And you just know someone at the 99th percentile. That's really what it is. And so that's what's so interesting because like at the higher levels, when you ask most people, that's why when you ask, you know, most Americans, like oh, what, what class are you? Most Americans say middle class, even people who are clearly in like the top 10% which I would say is, you know, upper to upper middle, at least probably upper class. I think the top 10% is probably upper class. What's top but 10% this is, we're cutting hairs. in terms of earnings in America? Do you know? I do not know off the top of my head. I could, you know, we could Google that. I have no clue what that is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just one of these things where like everything's relative. So I've, I've no clue what that, what that number is. I'm going to do it. Top 10% of earnings America. Let me see. What do you think it is? Give me your, give me your uh, prediction. So top ten percent. I'm gonna say maybe two. It's either uh, let's go one fifty household income. So here we've got investopedia.com. Uh, how much income puts you in the top one percent, five percent, ten percent? Top zero point one percent, three point two million. Top one percent, eight hundred and twenty three thousand. Mm-hmm. Top five percent. 342,000 top 10% of earners 173,000 I said 150 so that was close not far off man it's almost so. like you know what you're doing yeah um but dude <laughs> I, I uh I really really adore the book like uh, you know you and Morgan I think as a two-car garage for understanding how to do personal finance I think you've absolutely nailed it I love the fact that you've done summaries at the end of the entire book that summarizes the chapter I love the fact that there's loads of stats and stuff in there I'm coming at this right from someone who requires money but gets very very bored when sort of learning about finances and talking about investing Mm -hmm. Uh, and yet for anybody that thinks that they've listened to this and is like yeah I, I probably should learn this stuff super accessible real plain language some great stories in there uh you should be really really proud of the work that you've done dude like i i loved it so congratulations on on getting that out thank you chris i appreciate you saying that it means a lot to me especially for someone you said who's not really interested in money that means a lot and i do think morgan's book is like uh kind of like everything i missed morgan kind of like it's like oh yeah like someone asked today on twitter like who should i read first you or morgan like read me and then everything i missed morgan covers fills in completely. with yeah right? he's Dude. like because i the behavior it's it's hard to quantify a lot of that stuff and he's right like ultimately behavior is the most important thing but if you can't quantify it it's tough for me to write about that stuff and that's what he does so beautifully so i think we are kind of looking at the same issue in different ways and so it's it's interesting to kind of how we do that and i i love his book i'm a huge fan of his obviously like we're good friends and everything so i've heard i've heard on the on the great find that he might have something else in the works as well so whatever that's going to be is going to be fucking spectacular my lips are sealed that's yeah, all i'm gonna say i, I can't we can neither <laughs> confirm or deny uh dude look i really appreciate you i appreciate your work where should people go if they want to find out more stuff about you online so yeah my blog is of dollars and data.com so of dollars and data all one word um you can also find me on twitter at dollars and data you feel free to dm me my dms are open so i try to respond to everyone i have no idea like might get way too many but anyone wants to re- dm me about anything I can, i'll try to respond thank you dope i love it man thank you 